I'm guessing most, if not all of us, have had this experience. You're driving down the road, kids are in the back seat, everything's great, you're just running up to Walmart or Chick-fil-A or somewhere, just a normal, normal outing, and all of a sudden, you see brake lights, and you realize that the car, just a few feet in front of you, is at a dead stop. So you slam on your brakes, the car stops, but you and your children keep going. Thankfully, those good old seatbelts, they do their job. Nobody's injured, but the whiplash is not fun. You're probably going to feel that in the morning. Well, what I've just described is exactly how I have always felt at the intersection of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So last week, we saw that the Bible opens with this stunning portrait of men and women who share a name, who share a nature, and who share the epic mission to rule as God's representatives in this world. And I don't know about you, but I left here last week so pumped about being a woman. And more aware than ever of my intrinsic worth in the eyes of my maker. Well, a lot of teaching on Genesis 2 in complementarian circles is entirely focused on establishing male headship and female subordination. I have even heard well-meaning pastors argue that the collective pronoun they, which we see in Genesis 1, is superseded by the singular pronoun he in Genesis 2, asserting that women are actually not included in the mandate to rule. Hence the conclusion that leadership is masculine, submission is feminine, and there is no biblical allowance for overlap. Perhaps you've heard a pastor say something cheesy like, buckle your pew belts. Well, if he's a complementarian preaching through Genesis 2, you probably should. And go ahead and brace yourself for some pretty intense theological whiplash. I want to propose to you that such an experience is not warranted by the text, that male and female role distinctions are indeed present in Genesis 2, but that is not the whole story. What I want you to see today is that there's actually profound continuity between the affirmation of a woman's worth in Genesis 1 and the affirmation of her worth in Genesis 2. In fact, Genesis 2 builds on Genesis 1, by zooming in on the creation of the man and the woman and showing why both are essential and necessary to the fulfillment of the mission. And here's our main idea uh, this morning. Women are essential to God's work. Women are essential to God's 
work in the world. Now, I want to clarify, the same can be said of men. And if I were being like really, really um, accurate, I would say men and women are essential to God's work in the world. That would be the best reflection of this chapter. However, approximately zero people doubt that men are essential to God's mission in the world, right? Like that is not something anyone on the entire planet is confused about. Unfortunately, the value of women, particularly in areas of influence outside the home, is a minefield of confusion in the church. And that's what we're here to work out. Hence the one-sided main idea today. All right, are we cool with that? Men are awesome, you guys. I am so pro-man, okay? I'm married to one. I love him. Um, Hear me say that. I want you to hear me say that. All right, so I'm going to pull out four primary ways that Genesis 2 affirms this main idea that women are essential to God's work in the world. Number one, uh, we see it in God's words. Uh, Two, we see it in the procession of the animals. Three, we see it in her designated role. And four, we see it in the way that she was formed. And all four of these wholeheartedly testify to a woman's value. Now, one more thing I want to say before we actually dive into Genesis chapter 2, and and that is the... I just want to make sure we understand that a lot of the, the, the poor or, or, or inadequate, uh, unhelpful teaching on this passage stems from a failure to read it forward. All right, let me explain what I mean by that. If you've ever read the New Testament epistles, you know that Paul has some things to say about Genesis 2. He brings this this chapter into a lot of his writings. And because of this, there's a temptation to start with Paul and then read Genesis 2 entirely through that lens. A more sound theological method is to start with the earlier text and then allow the later text to enhance your understanding right, to build on and fill in what's already there. Remember, we did our, like, Bible 101. Before we can ask, what does it say? We have to ask, what did it say? And so the method we're going to use here is we are going to do our best to hear these words in Genesis 2 as those post-Exodus Israelites would have heard them. Then we are going to read it forward and allow Paul's insights to help us see how Genesis 2 impacts our marriages and our churches as new covenant believers. Does that make sense? So it's just a, a, a better ordering, right? There needs to be a certain ordering um, when we are studying uh, passages in different parts of Scripture, right? So that's the theological method we are applying. We are reading this forward, okay? So we're going to end with Paul. So y'all don't worry. Some of you are going to be worried. You're already worried based on what I've said. We're going to end with Paul. Don't worry. All right, so let's jump in. Number one, we know women are essential because God says we are. Straight up says it in this passage. Look at uh, Genesis chapter two. We're going to pick up in verse four. It says, these are the records of the heavens and the earth 
concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground, but mist would come up from the earth and water the ground. Let's stop there. The first thing I wanna point out is there's a little change in word order. All right, so in Genesis 1, 1, Genesis 2, 1, and then at the very beginning of chapter 2, verse 4, it says, heaven and earth. But then at the end of 2, verse 4, the order switches, and it's earth and heavens. And this is indicating for us that what we have here is a shift in perspective. All right, so chapter 1 was more of the 10,000-foot view of creation This chapter is zooming in on the land, specifically the humans that God creates to work and rule the land. And so that's going to account for a lot of the differences that we see between chapter one and chapter two. It has a different purpose. It has a different perspective. All right. Now, Genesis two opens very interestingly with the emptiness of the garden. All right, so God's mission that we learned about last week from Genesis chapter one is not being carried out at this point. There is no shrub, no plant, no rain, and all of that is building up to the most significant absence of all. There is no man to work the ground. That's the first conflict that we see in Genesis chapter two. We need those image bearers who were introduced to us in the last chapter. We need them to rule and subdue and be fruitful and multiply. Otherwise, a fully functioning, flourishing world cannot exist. Now, did God have to make it this way? No, he could have totally run the whole world all by himself, but that's not what he chose to do. He made a world where humans matter. Now, verse seven It's significant because it's here that this first conflict is resolved. Take a look, verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living being. All right, so we could spend hours on this one verse. Literally every word is significant here. I only have time to highlight a couple things. All right, so the first thing I want to highlight is the word formed. Formed. This is a hands-on word. God is rolling up his sleeves here. He is getting personally involved. He is not just speaking. He is molding. He is forming like a potter with clay. Another phrase I want to draw your attention to is breathed the breath of life. All right, so every creature breathes. But here, the narrator is stressing that human beings have the very breath of God sustaining them. He is sharing his very life with man, and he is doing so by breathing into his face. How very un-COVID-like, right? And so the generosity and the intimacy that is on display here is stunning and would have been shocking to the original audience who were immersed in a polytheistic culture where the gods were seen as capricious taskmasters who had to be appeased. 
the God of the Bible, could not be any more different than the gods of Egypt and the other surrounding nations. And just like I mentioned last week, that is a huge theme that we need to keep our eyes on. That's one thing that the, the narrator is going to constantly be doing is saying, Israel God, Israel's God is like no other God, all right? Once the man comes onto the scene, the focus shifts very quickly and very distinctly from the emptiness of the garden to the extravagance of the garden. Take a look, verse 18, or verse, verse 8. It says, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, and notice God's doing everything, like this whole chapter. God is, God is the main, he is the main character. He's the active party. All right, so the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed, and the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there, it divided and became a source of four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bdellium and onyx are also there. And the name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. All right, let's stop there. First, we see that there is an extravagant number of trees producing a wide variety of beautiful, delicious fruit for mankind to eat. So life in Eden is presented as a feast, which resonates on a very deep level with my foodie self. Any other foodies in the room? Yes, a few. All right. So like when I'm eating breakfast... I'm thinking about lunch, and when I'm eating lunch, I'm thinking about dinner, and when I'm eating dinner, I'm thinking about breakfast for the next day. Like, that's just, I, my whole life is like, oh, I just love food. So, man, this, any food image, imagery in the Bible, it's like, I love it. I eat it up. No pun intended. I eat it up. That's funny. All right. So, life in Eden is a feast, and the narrator draws our attention to two trees in particular. All right. So, first, we have the tree of life from which they are invited to eat freely, as much as you want. Now, if you liken Eden with the tabernacle, which you should, there is an astounding amount of overlapping imagery between those two things in the Old Testament. Uh, This tree uh, is what we we should think as, as the holy of holies. It was God's own life and creative presence made available to humans. And what's interesting, and something I'd never really dawned on me before, is that the implication is that immortality, this ability to live forever, wasn't something they just automatically assumed. It was something they maintained by continually feasting on the life-giving presence of God. 
So he was the continual source of their rejuvenation and eternal life. Now, there was another tree called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this is specifically representing the knowledge of good and evil that only God should have. That's why it was off limits. And one thing that's crystal clear in the narrative is that human beings were created to rely on God's revelation. He structured this whole world so that we would depend on his word. That is why we are here at Bible study, right? But the fruit of this tree offered mankind the opportunity to bypass that and decide for themselves what is good and evil and then act accordingly. What I want you to see here, we'll talk a little bit, we'll obviously talk more about those trees next week when we get into Genesis chapter 3. What I want you to see here is that the garden is not a setup for failure. It is a setup to thoroughly enjoy God's presence and his lavish provision. This is a place of extravagance. Now, a few months ago, there was a trend on social media where moms would record a video of their child at a table with a a little bowl of candy. And they would tell the child that they had to leave for a couple minutes, go to the bathroom or something, and and they would instruct the child they, they can have the candy, but not until mom gets back, all right? And so they would video the child while they were gone, and it was fun to see how different kids reacted in different ways to this particular restriction. I think a lot of people have something like that in mind when they think of Eden, as if there were only two trees. And of course, we know from chapter three that the fruit on that bad tree looked real good, right? And so we get this impression, we assume that Adam and Eve had to sit there right in front of it, staring at this gorgeous forbidden fruit all day, every day. That is not remotely close to the picture that we get in Genesis chapter two. Eden is a place of lush vegetation with tremendous variety that would make the most amazing farmer's market in the world look like the produce section of an inner city Walmart, all right? It would be more like sitting your kid down with a tiny bowl of M&M's next to their huge bucket of Halloween candy and saying, all right, now I'm going to have to leave for a few minutes. Do not touch the M&Ms, but you can have as much of the Halloween candy as you want. No problem. Who needs a few lousy M&Ms when you can have Sour Patch Kids and Reese Cups, right? (laughs) Same thing in Eden. Who needs the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when you have full access to the tree of life and all the lush vegetation of God's garden. This is why in Genesis 3, Satan has to expend effort to get Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. He has to deceive her. Because when you're busy feasting on God's presence, you don't want the prohibition. All right, so that's the picture that we need to get when we think of Eden and when we think of these trees and we think of the law that God gave uh, these two. All right, so there's an extravagant 
variety of trees, we also see that there's an extravagant water supply. I mean, all this talk, all these rivers, there's actually a lot of real estate in this chapter is devoted to the water. (laughs) I don't know if you picked up on that. So there is flowing from, directly from God, there's this river flowing through Eden, and then, and then these other rivers that then flow out to the four corners of the earth. Now, there is a Bible Project video. You know how much I am obsessed with the Bible Project. There is a video called Water of Life that traces the significance of this water source in Eden all the way through the storyline of the Bible. It is incredible, you guys. All right, so BibleProject.com. The video is called Water of Life. If you watch it, I will feel much better about the fact that I do not have time to talk about this anymore today. All right, so hit that video up, maybe eight minutes or so. It's not long. All right, so to recap, there's all the food Adam could ever want. There's a river of living water to supply the earth and quench his thirst, He's given meaningful work to do as God's royal representative. There's complete harmony between him and and nature. So the work is like fun. He's even invited to continually feast on the rejuvenating, life-sustaining presence of God. And it's in this context of extravagance that God says something no one would ever expect. Look with me at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. In the Hebrew, that phrase, not good, is at the very beginning of the sentence for emphasis. It is highly emphatic. So surrounded by the lavish provision of Eden, God leads with the words. He finally speaks, and he leads with the words, not good. It's absolutely astonishing. What do you mean, not good? Look around. And what is it that's not good about the garden? There was no woman. There was no woman. It is hard to imagine a stronger statement of a woman's value than this. Remember, God's intention expressed, Genesis chapter 1, male and female. He created them. Genesis 2.18, there's a man, but there's no mankind. (laughs) And what I want you to see is how the narrative is building. It's building and it's building and it's building to the creation of the woman. It's going to keep doing that, and it's so cool. So the very first way we know that women are essential is because God says so. It is not good for the man to be alone. In other words, a woman is necessary. And notice, God does not make Adam an elder board. He makes him a woman, a wife, right? All right, just throwing that out there. That's not on my notes. I should not say things that aren't on my notes, but just throwing that out there. All right, number two. 
We know women are essential because God goes out of his way to highlight the not goodness, that's my invented phrase, the not goodness of her absence. All right, so take a look at this. Verse 19, this is really neat. Okay, so verse 19 says, the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. And the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky and every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. All right, so we got a little animal parade. God brings the animals before the man. The man is tasked uh, to, to give it a name. Uh, which is another indication that he is ruling as God's representative. Naming conveys authority uh, in the Bible. But when you read this in context, what you see is that the animals weren't the focus. Neither is the naming. That's not really the point. The animals aren't the point. The naming isn't the point. The point of this parade is very clear. God is going out of his way to highlight the one deficiency of the garden, which is the absence of a woman. Now, God knows Adam needs a woman. Adam needs to know that Adam needs a woman, right? And that's what this exercise is all about, that he would recognize that every other creature had a counterpart except him. So again, The narrative is building. It's not good for the man to be alone. There's no corresponding helper for him. What is God going to do about it? Now, before we answer that question, I want to talk about that phrase, a helper corresponding to him. Your your translation might say suitable helper. That's another common translation. Now, in the homework, I revealed my long-standing secret dislike of this particular description of women. It is often taught, based on this phrase, that a woman's ontology or her essence is rooted in her submission to men. Along these lines, it is also often taught that we are always to assume the supporting role, and that it is unbiblical for a woman to lead out in any mixed gender context. Even though I have never been personally harmed or held back by any of these assumptions, I have heard them enough for it to make an impact. And there's a good chance you have as well if you've been around the church long enough. Happy to say, it turns out When you actually dig in and you look at what these words mean and you look at them in their context, far from being a demeaning expression of a woman's role in relation to the man, this is actually one of the most clear and beautiful expressions of a woman's worth in the whole Bible. In fact, it is the third point of our outline. We know women are essential because of their designated role as a helper corresponding to or a suitable helper. So let's go ahead and break that up. I'm going to start with the word corresponding to or suitable. Uh, It comes from the Hebrew word or the Hebrew uh, transliteration. I'm probably not pronouncing this right. I do not know Hebrew. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Um, I just yank this stuff from the commentaries. All right, you guys. So it's the Hebrew word konegdo. 
K-E-N-E-G-D-O. It means in front of, before, or opposite to. So it's talking about something that's like right here, right in front of your face. And what comes to my mind when I read that definition is, is the idea of a reflection, right? You're standing in front of a mirror, in front of. It's before you, but it's opposite to you. It's, 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 a, it's a mirror image. And scholars widely affirm that this word highlights what the woman has in common with the man. They are both humans with the same basic features of, of personhood. At the same time, it allows for those valuable complementary differences. So here again, we are seeing tremendous continuity between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. All right, so that's the um, corresponding to or suitable. Let's look at helper. All right, so this word is ezer in the Hebrew, E-Z-E-R. In your homework, I pointed out that the majority of the occurrences of this word in the Bible are references to who? God. They're references to God. So this word appears 19 times in the Old Testament. 16 of them are used of God specifically in reference to his role as a strong ally for his people. So context determines whether or not the term helper implies menial labor or some kind of strict top-down subordination. Here, it clearly does not. In Genesis 2, the word helper is used to signify the woman's essential contribution, not her inadequacy. She comes alongside her man to support him with a strength that he does not have on his own. She is an indispensable partner required to achieve that divine mission that is outlined for us in Genesis chapter one. All right, number four. We know women are essential because of the way the first woman was made. All right, we know women are essential because of the way the first woman was made. All right, now the tension has been building and building and building. God has declared Adam's solitary life in the garden not good. He has gotten the animals involved in helping Adam fully recognize the lack. He has clearly defined the essential role of that, that the woman will have as a suitable helper. And now it is finally. Does God reach for more dust and let Adam help? No. He doesn't use the dust this time. And Adam is not even a conscious spectator. Like any good man, he is totally conked out. (laughs) Let's take a look. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. I swear God does that for my husband every night, especially when the kids are struggling to sleep. Anyway, don't quote me on that. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. And the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. Let's go ahead and stop there. All right, so the first thing I want to point out are all the things God did. The verbs, 
He caused, he took, he closed, he made, he brought. And what did the man do? Again, he did nothing. No, no slide on the man. No, no slide on the man. Like, God made sure that he did nothing. Like, he, it wasn't his fault. He, God made him fall into a deep sleep. And so I, I asked you some questions in your homework. Like, what can, we, what can we derive from that? Is there anything we can take from that? And I, I think what we can take from it is, is that the woman is 100% God's idea. She is 100% God's creation. She is 100% God's gift. And she is also the very first creation to ever come from another living being. And to unpack the significance of this, we need not look any further than Adam's own personal reflection on the event. Look at what he says in verse 23. And And the man said, This one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now notice, he doesn't say, at last, I can procreate. Or, at last, a human I can rule. (laughs) He says, at last, There's someone like me, made from the same stuff. I've got to give her a name that matches mine. You know, complementarians often point out the authority expressed in Adam's naming of Eve, which is a very valid observation. But make no mistake, Adam is singing about his equal, literally crafted from his very own body. I mean, you you, you simply cannot fathom a more beautiful picture of oneness than what we have right here. Now, what's the deal with the rib? You ever wonder that? I have. And there's lots of different cute little, you know, poetic things that people have come up with. I don't have a clear answer for you, sorry. Um, But I do have an interesting observation. Again, I'm, that whole Bible perspective, I think, is is the key, is the key to informing so many of our questions. I've already mentioned that there is a tremendous overlap between the imagery and and words, phrases that we see here in the description of Eden and what we see in the description later on uh, of the tabernacle. The word translated ribs in 221 occurs a lot, a lot, a lot in the construction of the tabernacle uh, and and later the temple. uh, And there it is translated side. We see the same word come up again in Ezekiel's vision of the new temple, right? So you got rib and you got a whole bunch of side in reference to the construction of the tabernacle. So when you step back, here's what you see. First, we have God as a potter who forms the man. Then you have God as a gardener 
who designs a place of beauty and abundance. And this all leads up to his role as a builder, raising the woman from the rib of the man and with her creation, the garden temple is finally complete. And the mission set forth in Genesis chapter one can finally be carried out. And what is it that God has established as the primary vehicle for the fulfillment of this mission? It's the human family. It's the human family. And the text we have walked through today is the launching pad for the themes of seed and promise and ultimately the fulfillment of the promise through Jesus Christ and his family we affectionately call the church. That is the point of Genesis chapter 2. No whiplash necessary. Now, I told you we're going to get to Paul. We're going to read it forward, and that, we're going to do that right now. That's how we are going to close, all right? So again, if you have read through the New Testament, you know that Genesis 2 shows up again. It actually shows up uh, a couple of places. Jesus mentions it. Um, so Jesus has a very high view of marriage, and he takes that from Genesis chapter 2, all right? We see it again in the epistles, uh, particularly in the writings of Paul, specifically in regard to the concepts of a husband's headship and a wife's submission, as well as the role of pastor-elder being reserved for qualified men. Paul roots all of those things not in the cultural norms of his day. He's often criticized for doing that. But no, he, he roots his argument for those things uh, in Genesis chapter 2, in the creation narrative that we have just walk through. His threefold reason for male leadership in the home and the church, like I said, just, it's just straight out of Genesis 2. He doesn't even do anything weird with, weird with it. All right, so these are his threefold, his threefold reasons for male leadership in the home and the church. Number one, Adam was formed first. He makes this statement in 1 Timothy 2.13. Number two, Eve was taken out of Adam. All right, we just read that, the whole rib thing. Okay, we see that in 1 Corinthians 11.8. Number three, Eve was made for Adam's sake. Again, we just read that. She is a suitable helper. And you can try as you might to like switch out the name of of man and woman and try to make the man the suitable helper in Genesis chapter two. It does not work, you guys. Like it all falls apart. It doesn't make any sense. All right, so Paul is not out of line making any of these observations. They are exactly the observations that we just made as we walked through. Have all three of these things been abused and taken way too far? Yes, they have. Does that give us permission to throw them out? No, it doesn't. And we shouldn't want to. These are God's words, right? These are God's words. And if we believe he's good and he loves us, then his commands and words are going to reflect that. It's important to note that Paul is not adding to or changing the message of Genesis 2, again, people that are more highly critical of Paul's writing will um, kind of project this idea that he's like totally out there. He's just 
that, that he's just doing his own thing over here. Uh, but if the Bible was written by one divine author, which we wholeheartedly affirm that it is, then we assume a continuity between the words of Moses and the words of Paul because they are ultimately all the words of God. All right, so whatever we conclude about Paul has to fit what we conclude about Moses. Whatever we conclude about 1 Corinthians 11 has to fit with what we conclude about Genesis 2. Does that make sense? Like there's gotta be a continuity, just like there needed to be a continuity between Genesis 1 and 2, there's gotta be a continuity between Genesis 2 and the rest of what the Bible says about women. And I think that's an important thing that sometimes, uh, well, a lot of times gets overlooked. So Paul is filling out our understanding of Genesis 2, and he's applying it to very specific situations, which unfortunately we don't know all the details of. Something funky was going on in Corinth with the women, you guys. Something, and it had to do with the head coverings, and it is like, you're just like, could you have given us a little bit more information? Same with 2 Corinthians, or 1 Timothy 2. I mean, a lot of things in there are straightforward, but we don't know what was going on. Like, what, what prompted him to write those things? Like, man, it just doesn't fill us in on all that stuff. And that's why interpreters have a really hard time coming up with anything we could be super dogmatic about um, in reference to those uh, particular passages. Now, I talked to you guys a lot about keeping the plain things the main things, right? If we do that, we're going to be good, right? We may not figure everything out, but what, what are the plain things? If we're keeping the plain things the main things, what can we for sure, without any doubt, 100% conclude from Paul's use of Genesis chapter 2? Number one, we can conclude that there is an ordering of the man and the woman in regard to their functions. There is an ordering of the man and the woman in regard to their functions. Now, (laughs) whether this is a strict top-down ruler-subordinate ordering, that is up for debate. And boy, is it. All right? (laughs) What is clear is that a unique leadership role and responsibility is delegated to the husband before the fall. This does not mean a wife can't ever lead. It doesn't mean that she has to be a stay-at-home mom. It doesn't mean that she can't be the primary breadwinner. It doesn't mean that she can't head up family devotions. It doesn't mean that she can't craft the family budget. All of those things would be a matter of personal conscience for each believer. None of them are expressly commanded or prohibited in Scripture, and it is shocking to me how many rules and regulations Christians have added to God's good commands regarding men and women in the New Testament. And the result is that his commands look less and less good. That is the real tragedy of legalism, you guys. We have a good God who has given us good commands because he loves us and cares about us and is every day fighting for our joy. And we add like a hundred more commands And what we end up with is this icky, yucky view of the law of God. It's tragic. And it's happening 
at a very high level in this area of biblical manhood and womanhood. And we need to be really careful. We need to honor what the Bible says. Even if it feels icky to us, even if it feels cringy, if God says it, he says it and it's good. And we need to figure out how to love it. But man, let's not add a bunch of things on top of what he says. All right, I feel a little passionate about that. Number two, another plain, clear thing we can take from Paul's use of Genesis 2 is that this ordering of men and women is to be reflected in two spheres, the home and the church. All right, this ordering is to be reflected both in the home and the church. Now, again, (laughs) the ins and outs of exactly how this is supposed to be fleshed out in each and every context is a matter of much debate and beyond the scope of this particular lesson or this study in general. I do have four affirmations to leave you with regarding male headship. Um, That's the Bible word for male leadership. Um, You can say male authority. I don't have a problem saying male authority. Some people do, that's cool, I get it. Um, I'm just gonna use the Bible word, let's be safe. Headship, God uses headship, I'll use headship, all right? So I wanna leave you with four affirmations regarding male headship that might prove helpful to you as you're kind of trying to navigate this in your own mind and heart. And these are based on the very clear implications of Genesis 2, all right? So number one, the man is called to lead his wife as his equal, not govern her as his subordinate, And that is what I was trying to get at with uh, question 16 on day three. I asked you, what is the one prescriptive action in the entire chapter? It's to leave and cleave, not rule, (laughs) leave and cleave. That's the one prescriptive action in relation to the woman. All right, so number one, man is called to lead his wife. Number two, his position as head is more about responsibility than it is about rights and rank. Number three, his strength is for the purpose of protection and provision, not power. And number four, his relationship with his wife is characterized by collaboration, not delegation. So be more, let's go do this, not you go do this. Right, you see the difference there? Now, I've kind of inserted all of this on a chart for you because it had been a couple weeks since you had a chart All right, I love them. Um, But I wanted to put it here because this is, I think, valuable just in in training us how to deal with controversial theological subjects. All right, so I have on the left the easy stuff, the clear stuff. He leads his wife. He has greater responsibility before God. The burden of protection and provision, collaboration as one body. All of that is like super clear in Genesis chapter 2. It's, I mean, you have to do a lot of work to deny any of those things, all right? The stuff on the left, not as clear, not as clear, all right? Now, you can get there using a sound biblical argument, all right? But in order to get there, where headship is seen as, you know, governing um, rights and rank, uh, power, that, that, that kind of idea, you, you have to put a lot of weight 
on passages like 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11. I, April Swears, I am full on entering opinion zone here. I'm making you aware of this. Opinion zone, opinion zone, all right? I am not personally comfortable making such uh, a challenging passage. And by challenging, I just mean hard to interpret. Like, really conservative scholars disagree because we just don't have all the information we wish we had, right? So I'm not comfortable making such a challenging passage the lens through which I view every other text relating to manhood and womanhood. So I'm going to wholeheartedly camp out on the left side of that chart. I am a complementarian. I believe in an ordering of the man and the woman, um, all of those things. Now, I'm probably more, I'm, I'm more of a soft complementarian, if you wanted to give me a label, all right? That is my personal opinion. Take it or leave it. You are welcome to disagree with me. A lot of godly, wonderful, smart people would disagree with me, all right? So we can still be friends, and we can still affirm the worth of women in the eyes of God, regardless of where we fall on any spectrum of, you know, belief about these particular nuances. All right? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for these women. I thank you for the sweet spirit here. I thank you that uh, I feel like we're the kind of group that we can, we can all land in, in maybe a little bit different places. And, and there's still um, such a sweet spirit of love and unity and oneness here. And uh, I just pray that as we kind of um, digest all of this and, and try to hash out, especially the more challenging parts uh, as we read Genesis 2 forward and we get into the New Testament epistles and we try to figure out um, women's roles in the home and the church, Lord, I just pray you'd be our guide. I pray that you would, um, you would just speak, that you would grant clarity, uh, that you would also grant um, great generosity toward others who hold a different opinion than we do. Um, that we, we are all moving forward, um, seeking to fulfill the mission that you have given us. I pray that that would remain our focus. Lord, I thank you just again for how you affirm all through your word the, the, uh, the value uh, and the essential nature of women. And I pray that this would serve to encourage. I pray that it would serve to embolden. I pray that it would um, just shape our identity in a way that would lead us to step out in courageous faith and influence the people that you have placed around us. We love you so much, and we thank you uh, just for all that you're doing and all that you're teaching us. In Jesus' name, amen.